I am thrilled to, uh, to say the least, to dive into the Word of God with you at this time, a teaching moment in our uh, service. And uh, we are taking a break from our uh, series in Galatians. We did three parts of an introduction, and we're ready to dive in. So I suppose uh, if we had to take a break, this is probably the, the best time to take the break. And we're going to focus our attention, as you probably already know, on the resurrection, as this is Resurrection Sunday. So um, have your Bibles <clears throat> at the ready. I want to begin by just saying that if you uh, have ever done any serious evangelizing in your life with real skeptics, those who are not seriously seeking for the truth or meaning to life, but will engage you anyway about Christianity, then you know how it can be with them. The conversation may wander over many topics depending on their random questions. The existence of God, for example, is he really there? How do you know? If he's so good, then why is there so much evil in the world? And then there's the nature of man. Well, you say the Bible teaches that all are sinners and condemned. Really? Well, I know some pretty decent people in this world that wouldn't hurt a fly. Is that fair, do you think? And how can you say that all have offended God? I don't remember offending him. Or there's, of course, the nature of God as well. If God is so good, then why is, again, there's so much turmoil and wickedness and evil and murders and things like that taking place? Wouldn't he correct that somehow? Now, I've had those conversations with lots of people over the years, and I always try to bring them back to one fact that is both historical and indisputable, and that is the resurrection. I say the tomb was empty, the body was gone. And that is an astounding historical fact when you consider just the events uh, around the tomb itself. It was sealed with a heavy stone, at least a, a ton or more in weight, difficult to remove. There were Roman guards stationed around the tomb to make sure that no one got there or got in or got out. Now, they would have guarded it with their lives. And any argument that Jesus' body was somehow removed or stolen, it really holds no water. And that's putting it politely. Really, all such arguments like that are preposterous. But as preposterous as they may be, the religious leaders of that day actually concocted a false narrative that Jesus' body had been stolen. You see, they hated Jesus so much, and they had, been, and they had much to lose if people ever knew the truth of the resurrection. They needed to do something. We read about their plan in Matthew 28. In verses 11 to 15, it says, Some of the men from the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came at night and stole him while you were sleeping. And if this comes to the governor's ears, well, we will appease him and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and they did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day, writes Matthew. 
Uh, these Jews were not the only ones that stood to lose something if the truth of the resurrection got out. Pilate would as well. Uh, we would have to, he would have to, to see through the Jews, he would have had have seen rather through the Jews' false narratives after questioning them for just a brief few moments. And he's likely, he likely punished the guards as well. The punishment was probably very severe. But if word got out about the resurrection and caused heat and controversy in the empire, then he would have to deal with Herod, if not even Caesar himself. So he just left it alone. And this is why he didn't even search for the body. That's very odd. We all know that if he had a body to produce when the Christians started proclaiming Jesus and him resurrected, he would have stopped that movement dead in its tracks. But he left it alone. Very odd. Jesus' resurrection would not even make front-page news at that time. Instead, the religious leaders saw, to, saw fit to, to concoct this false narrative, to spread it around. We would call it misinformation today. And Jesus' body was stolen, they said. And this would have quickly spread and then have been dismissed by the masses. Uh, or, or, or that is to say, Jesus would have been dismissed by the masses. Their interest would have gone right away. They would have considered the, the declaration that Jesus rose by any of his followers as rel mere propaganda from babbling cult members. And that's it. It was a clever ploy. The ironic fact of history, though, is that these authorities were actually the ones spreading propaganda. Now, we understand that, I think. There's plenty that happens today worthy of front-page news that mainstream media purposely ignores because it doesn't, support, it doesn't support their liberal agenda, right? We know that. Half the country still doesn't know that our southern border is wide open and that for the past two years, nearly two million illegal immigrants have crossed and received special treatment from the U.S. government since Biden took office. Well, there are a few references to Jesus by first century secular sources like Tacitus and Suetonius and Pliny the Younger, but they say nothing of his resurrection at all. You could see how effective the the ploy was, the false narrative. Only Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, mentions it. This is very interesting. There is an entry in his Antiquities that some scholars today question the legitimacy of, of course. And to be fair, there are actually two versions of Josephus' entry in his Antiquities about Jesus. One does clearly look to have been tampered with, probably by some zealous Christian. But the other is un, an unedited version that was discovered, and it sounds very much like the way a Jewish historian who had no sympathy for Christianity would have written about Jesus. Here's what he said. Quote, At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. 
But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, concerned uh, concerning whom the prophets had reported wonders. And the tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. End quote. That's very interesting. Whether it is what Josephus wrote, and regardless of how scant the first century testimony about the resurrection is, we have all the proof we need, really, from the New Testament Gospels. And they are, don't forget, primary sources written by eyewitnesses who uh, can testify to the empty tomb and the risen Lord. The late founder and president of the Institute for Christian Research, Dr. Henry Morris, observed in regard to the ongoing opposition to the, fact that the uh, to the fact of the resurrection that, quote, no scholar or anyone else has ever yet been satisfactorily able to explain away the empty tomb of Christ. The unbreakable historic record that Jesus Christ died on the cross was buried in a specific sepulcher and was out of that tomb three days later can be explained only by his resurrection. Every other profited, a proffered theory, that is, has failed miserably, end quote. And he's right. It's all failed miserably. Now, in light of such a long history of failed attempts to locate a body, I think our message to skeptics of the faith should be simply quit looking for the living among the dead. And that's exactly what the two angels said to the women who came to the tomb on Easter morning to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial. They put it in a rhetorical question, very penetrating question. They said, why are you seeking the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise from the dead? The tomb was empty. The body was gone. And the burden of proof lies with any skeptic to prove otherwise. Now, beloved, the resurrection was always at the center of God's plan of salvation from the very beginning. The Old Testament assures us of that. It was prophesied there over and over again when the Apostle Paul testified before Agrippa in Acts 20. Six, He said, verses 22 to 23, So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place as to whether the Christ was to suffer and whether as first from the resurrection of the dead he would proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Peter preached Jesus' resurrection when he stood before the Jerusalem council, I'm sorry, the crowd, um, on the day of Pentecost. He claimed that King David talked about it in Psalm 16. That's the psalm we read for our call to worship this morning. He said there in Acts 2, 
verses 30 to 32. So because he was a prophet and knew, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to see one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. It is this Jesus whom God raised up, a fact to which we all are witnesses. We hear the exact same thing from Paul later. In Acts 13, verse 33, he says that God has fulfilled this promise to those of us who are the descendants by raising Jesus. He also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep and was buried among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to your brothers that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, see that the thing spoken of in the prophets does not come upon you. Look, you scoffers, and be astonished and perish, for I am accomplishing a great work in your day, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. That was Paul. We read in Luke chapter 20, verse 37, that Jesus himself confirms the resurrection by the Old Testament prophets. But as for the fact that the dead are raised, even Moses revealed this in the passage about the burning bush, where he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, Jesus' argument here is impeccable. When Jesus said this, the patriarchs had long since been dead, right? But his point is that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. So the patriarchs must still be alive with God in heaven. And that's exactly what Jesus was getting at. We read in Luke 26 that Jesus appeared in his post-resurrected body to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, explaining the prophecies of the Christ, of his death and resurrection from the Old Testament. Now, our focus this morning is not on the validity of the resurrection. Rather, it's on its power. The resurrection event itself was a divine display of God's power. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. There wasn't a more powerful way for God to declare that Jesus was the Son of God than by raising him from the dead. And We might also add that neither was there a more powerful way for Jesus himself to communicate to the world that he is who he claims to be and that his claims are true than by conquering death through resurrection. It confirmed his ability to save people from their sins and to promise them eternal life in a real body no matter what happens to them in their earthly existence. Paul knew and firmly believed this. In Romans 6 verse 5 he said, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death... Well, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he says, But the fact is Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. More will follow. 
1 Corinthians 15, 42. So also in the resurrection of the dead, it is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable one. Now, if by the lesser event of raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus proved to Mary, Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, will live. You can imagine just how much more confirming Jesus' own resurrection was. God made a powerful statement with the resurrection. Now, we might also point out the power of Jesus' resurrection is felt by those who have been changed by it, namely Christians. For example, the power of Jesus' resurrection creates new life, a saved life. Peter explains this in chapter 1 of his first epistle. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It certainly is transformative. Upon seeing the post-resurrected Lord, doubting Thomas became a true worshiper. And the other 500 followers of Jesus were all transformed by the reality of his resurrection and consequently motivated to witness boldly for him even to the point where they were severely persecuted and some of them martyred. That's how powerful Jesus' bodily resurrection is. And by the way, that is also one of the proofs for the resurrection. No one would ever die for a lie. Now let's consider this in more detail from our text this morning. It's Philippians chapter 3. Take your Bibles and turn there. Find your way to verses 10 and 11 where the Apostle Paul talks about the power of the resurrection. Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. He says there that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What's the resurrection power that Paul speaks of? What well, has to be that same power that Jesus used to conquer death by, by rising from the dead. But since Paul is not specific in this passage as to what he means, we would be right in assuming that he used it in its most comprehensive sense. So the rest of Scripture would confirm that Jesus' power conquered more than death. He conquered the bondage of sin. He conquered the principalities and the powers of this spiritual world. He conquered the very devil himself, who rules this world at the moment. Nothing is done outside of Jesus' sovereign rule. And because Jesus raised himself from the dead, he demonstrated that he has the power also to judge all human and supernatural beings. Jesus is Lord of all, and the resurrection is the greatest proof of that. But might Paul be talking about something in addition to all of that? Might he be talking also and more specifically about resurrection power that is manifest in the lives of these who are the beneficiaries of it? In other words, Paul was a Christian. 
he trusted the work of Christ alone for his salvation. He had become converted. And you can read about his conversion in Acts chapter 9. It's rather dramatic. On, one, on, the, on the day that he met Jesus Christ, though, we know for sure he died to his old self. And he became a new creation, a new person with an entirely new nature. He so associated with Christ that as he would later write to the Romans, and as we've just read from Romans, he said he died with Christ. He was buried with him. He was raised with him to a new life, a life that is far superior to the old life. Paul himself speaks of this truth in Philippians 3. He says, for example, in verses 4 to 6, that before his conversion, well, he had more reason than anyone to be confident in his achievements. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. This used to be his boast. And what a boast it was. But after meeting the resurrected Lord, he had been transformed by Jesus. And these achievements and whatever else he had gained by his own strength and intellect, he says in verses 7 and 8, he counted as loss because of Christ. He counted all these achievements that were once his boast to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord, for whom he had suffered the loss of all things. He counted them as rubbish, as he says, so that he may gain Christ and may be found in him. Paul received new spiritual abilities along with his new nature. Here he could now understand the Old Testament scriptures properly and accurately. He could say no to sin because he had died to it the day he was raised to newness of life in Christ. He could resist the devil's temptation in his life. He could obey God and have his approval and his pleasure. He could use the God-given, tailor-made trials in his life as platforms for ministry. He could invest in the kingdom, put on the spiritual armor that was now available to him for the good fight. He had the indwelling Holy Spirit to assist him in this fight. And with this miraculous change of heart wrought by the power of, 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 of power of Christ working through him, this resurrection power in him, Paul could and would live a very different life. What a wonderful and miraculous change. What's more wonderful about it is that it is true of every Christian. It's true of you. Every one of us who's been raised with Christ, a new man, a Christian, by his resurrection power, has these same capabilities that he never had before. Are they evident in your life? Or have you suppressed them? If you're struck with this portrait of the resurrected life, of a person that has been resurrected spiritually, in conversion and knows its power, well, you shouldn't be 
because this is your portrait too. And those of us who thank the Lord Jesus Christ this morning in this worship service, because we are the recipients of his resurrected power, we should examine ourselves to see if we are consistently manifesting it in our lives, in our attitude, in our actions. For any in the church today, or actually many in the church today, I should say, those being a, a Christian is a matter really of convenience or necessity. And I don't mean necessity in terms of being saved from the, from the reality of hell and God's judgment. Let me give you an example. People crave the social benefits of the body of Christ. That's the necessity I'm talking about. So they seek out a body that they can feel comfortable in. They want to be loved, they want to be accepted for who they are, stroked and praised, while maintaining a measure of independence that doesn't allow people in. And they don't want the social interaction, or they want, I should say, the social interaction without the accountability. They want the blessings and the permission of leadership without having to submit to it. They want to embrace the promise of God's blessing without having to maintain any kind of Christian witness in their lives. They want what the resurrected life promises without the change that it creates. So they play the part of the churchgoer. And sadly, there are many churches that will accommodate them. In addition to this, these same pretenders find their brand of Christianity convenient because it enhances their life in some way. What well, makes me feel good about myself? secures for me a, a whole new set of friends. It promises that God will answer my prayers. That all sounds wonderful. Sign me up. But this is not what the faith is about. Not at all. It's not some kind of psychological support for the fragile and needy or a way to enhance one's social life. It's not some kind of additive like a spice that brings out the flavor in a meal. People in the church who think this know nothing of the power of Jesus' resurrection in their own lives if they've even ever been raised to a new life at all. The resurrection, or the resurrected life, the resurrected life has counted the cost of following Christ and knows that it is quite the opposite of the life of convenience. He picks up his cross and he follows Christ, ready to die for the Lord if need be. He considers the reproach of Christ to be worth more than the treasures of this life. He submits his will to the will of God, makes Christ his life, not just part of it. He invests his time and energies in the kingdom, tries to make every moment of his life count because the days are evil. He rejoices through trial. He's more than a conqueror, unmoved by trouble of any kind. He lives with his eyes on the kingdom, constantly reaching for it, striving for it. We're not surprised to find this kind of lifestyle to be characteristic of those in the early church right after Pentecost. One example comes from Acts 4, Verses 33 and 34, where Luke says that the power of Christ's resurrection 
in the lives of the early Christians motivated them to live selfishly, selflessly and to care for the needs of each other. I love this. Let me read it for you. Luke says, And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. All who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. Now, I believe it's significant that Luke speaks of the apostles giving testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 33 in the same breath that he mentions everyone was caring for each other in a selfless way in verse 34. While, while we might think at first glance that these activities are independent of each other, the apostles were doing their thing, the people in the church in the first century, they were doing their thing. I would submit to you that, that, that there's more of a connection than you think here. The Greek word in verse 34, uh, 33, we're giving testimony, refers obviously to the apostles' own eyewitness account of the Lord's resurrection. You might remember that that was actually a, uh, a prerequisite or a qualification to become an apostle. You had to have witnessed the Lord's resurrection and, of course, had to be with him from the very beginning. But their testimony was not only in word. I find it interesting. Luke doesn't say that they proclaimed the resurrection, a word he could have used very easily. Rather, he says that they gave testimony to it. Which means that while they certainly stated verbally the testimony as an eyewitness account. Hey, we were there. We saw the resurrection. We touched the Lord. We, we heard him and so on. It especially means that they pointed to, their, to the unmistakable change in their own lives because of it. We're changed is the idea. They were different guys because of the resurrection. And that brings us to verse 34. The resurrection to which they could personally testify had happened and had affected them was really the demonstration of the grace of God in their lives and not just theirs. Luke says in verse 34, also in the lives of others as well. And we can see it as they sell their properties, as they downsize in order to give to those in need. The NIV captures this connection between the two verses, probably the best of, of all the versions. It says, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Yes, that's, that's the testimony of the resurrection, of its power. God's grace in this context was the gift of a resurrected life that Jesus gave, and it was so powerfully at work within the body that each ministered faithfully and thoroughly to one another. In another instance, we find Paul motivated to live a blameless life. We just saw a selfless life here. We see the apostle himself living a blameless life because of the reality of the resurrection. This is in Acts 24. 
In Acts 24, verses 14 to 16, Paul testifies before Governor Felix. Part of the testimony, or his, te- his, his testimony, yes, he says this, But I confess this to you, that in accordance with the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law as it was written by the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and before other people always. Now, Paul says in verse 16, in view of this, he does his best to maintain a blameless conscience. What to what or to what does this refer? What is the antecedent to this? Well, it has to be God's law, which he kept and especially what the law says about the final resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. So the future resurrection, according to God's word, is enough to motivate Paul to live blamelessly. I know it's coming, and because I know it's coming, I need to live accordingly. I need to live blamelessly. Now, what does he mean by this? More specifically, Paul knew that what awaited those who rejected the gospel, and that made him <clears throat> responsible before God, <coughs> excuse me, to tell them. If he didn't tell them what was coming and what was in store for them, then he wouldn't be blameless. You see that? That's what he means by being blameless. He doesn't shirk his responsibility to warn those who don't know Christ, of God's coming wrath, so that they may believe the gospel and be saved from it. Paul could do this even in the face of death threats, because he was blameless before God first, and second to people. Now that order is important. If you are concerned that you live a blameless life before God, that you live in obedience to his word in any situation, then you will always, always be blameless in your dealings with people. If you're blameless in your actions before God, you will always be blameless in your actions before people. One assures the outcome of the other. Well, even if people accuse me of hating them and and not respecting them, yes, Because God says you're really loving them. And what God thinks is all that matters. If, on the other hand, you treat people the way they want to be treated, respect my beliefs and don't heckle me with your obnoxious gospel, then you wouldn't be blameless before them or God because you're not not warning them of God's judgment that awaits them that they desperately need to know so they may repent and be saved. And you also disobey God who commands you to warn them and give them the gospel. In that situation, you would not be blameless in your actions either before God or the world, even though you might enjoy a reputation among the world as being 
a good ecumenist and respectful of the beliefs of others. Seek to be blameless before God by treating people in the world the way God wants you to treat them, which is to love them enough to give them the truth. Now that will certainly earn you a reputation in the world as being an agitator, narrow-minded, not a team player, refuses to coexist, as the phrase goes, with other worldviews. But you would be blameless before God in the world. You see how that works? That's why the order is important. You must love your neighbor the way God wants you to. And when that when that comes to unbelievers, the best way to love them is to show them the truth in, the, in word and deed. Paul did, uh, did this on a consistent basis. Now, we're not responsible, of course, for people's rejection of the gospel once we tell them that's not our department. And those Jews in Athens blasphemed the Lord in response to Paul's gospel presentation. Luke says, in Acts 18, verse 6, that Paul then shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood is on your own heads. I'm clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He does says the exact same thing in Acts 20, verse 26. The point of both passages is that we're not responsible for people's rejection of the gospel, and if they protest vehemently and even violently, then we need to leave. Leave them alone. There are plenty of people in this world who need to hear the gospel, and we ought not to waste our time telling people who fight us. They know where you are. If they want to hear more, they'll find you. Sometimes we need to know when to quit, beloved. Jesus said not to cast pearls before swine. Very strong language for enough is enough. When it comes to those who reject our evangelistic efforts so vehemently and violently. Now make no mistake, Paul could turn from them with a clear conscience. He was blameless in his actions. Beloved, we live resurrected lives with the promise that someday we will receive even our bodies, our physical bodies, back fully redeemed at the end of time, fit for heaven unlike others who will receive a body fit for hell. And that should motivate us to live blamelessly before God. Are you about the work? Are you about God's work? Are you consistent in that work? Do you love your neighbors the way God wants you to, regardless if they persecute you for it? That is what is indicative of the resurrected life. Well, the book of Acts shows us that the resurrection was central to the preaching of Paul and Peter. And according, and according to Hebrews 6, it was foundational and elementary teaching of the early church. And our brief survey this morning shows that it was transformative in the lives of people, creating them into Christians who gave who gave their lives to Christ, who went on to live Christ to the world no matter how unpopular it was to do so until he returns. Now, this brief study then leaves us to answer two important questions, the first of which is asked of the skeptic. 
And you might want to ask the skeptic this the next time you talk to him or her. The resurrection event poses a question to anyone who is clear-headed enough to take it at face value and see its transforming power in the lives of others. Have you come to, ex to know experientially the power of Jesus' resurrection? That's a fair question. As George Whitfield wrote over 200 years ago, have you received the Holy Ghost and by his powerful operations on our hearts have been raised from the, dead, dead, the, from the death of sin to a life of righteousness and true holiness, he asks. Have you known the transforming, transformation in your own life that comes by the inner working of the Holy Spirit? Another fair question to ask our audience. As I said, so many people come to church as pretenders, play the part, speak the lingo, but they are dead in an inside. To them who come only on Christmas and Easter because they believe the facts of the historical Jesus who rose from the dead, the, true, the truth is not activated in their hearts. It's not activated at all. The um, the second question is to us who have, of course, come to experience this resurrection life firsthand. We have a nasty habit, I think, of forgetting it or dousing it by setting our affections too often on things in this world, the things that have no lasting gain that cannot save and, and will be sure to disappoint in the end. We need to leave it all behind and we need to strive for the kingdom, for the inheritance that is ours in Christ, for the glory, the eternal glory in the presence of God, for the commendation from our Lord himself when we see him face to face. I close with the words of George Whitfield who challenges us to continue to strive to know better the power of Jesus' resurrection. Quote, If our own wills or the world could have made us happy, God never would have sent his own dear son, Jesus Christ, to die and rise again to deliver us from the power of them. But because they only torment and cannot satisfy God bids us to renounce them. Oh, the depth of the riches and excellency of Christianity. Well might the great St. Paul count all things but dung and dross for the excellency of the knowledge of it. Well might he desire so ardently to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. For even on this side of eternity, it raises us above the world and makes us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well might that glorious company of worthies recorded in the Holy Scriptures supported with a deep sense of their heavenly calling despise the pleasures and the profits of this life and wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins in dens and caves on the earth, being destitute, afflicted, 
tormented. And oh, that we were all like-minded, that we felt the power of Christ's resurrection as they did. Father, we thank you for this time together that we can come and worship you in spirit and in truth. Open your, your word and read for ourselves the truth which you have preserved for us down through the centuries. This particular one from Philippians 3, 10 and 11. Lord, we pray that that that, that, that is our prayer each and every day until you come, that we might know the power of your resurrection. Lord, we pray that we would would not douse it in any way by seeking after the pleasantries of this life, but as Whitfield said, we would despise them and that we would reach for heaven. We pray, O God, that you would use us then, those that you have raised from the dead, to speak and make clear once again the truth of Christ and his claims by the way we live and the way we speak. This is our true desire. It is what we ask, O God, that you would make reality in our lives more and more each day until you come again for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.